So labor is uh, very, I mean, it's it's fairly easy to get the labor. It's, okay. uh, it's more of an issue of keeping the people we have employed. Okay. And I would say we must, we are at about 40% capacity. Okay. Um, this has been a tough uh, business environment. Uh, oh, COVID uh, yep. is one is affected our our business. Um, I mean, it's 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 multiple factors. It's uh, um, prefabrication coming from other countries um, that that has. Uh, really affected our industry it's it's a tough one I can tell you the example of that Shell Franklin job in Ohio all of that prefabrication came from Turkey okay uh, India ships a ton of it Korea ships a ton of it into this country um, it's something where there's no, there's no taxes on it um, huge adv- huge advantage uh, in the fact that the people we employ have uh, all benefits, pension, insurance. Um, so we pay that, plus we pay taxes. So it's that's hard to compete against those types of, of competition. competition. This is the Right Idea Podcast. Welcome to Season 3 of the Right Idea Podcast. I'm Kevin Nicholson, Volunteer President and CEO of No Better Friend Corp. In this season, we're highlighting the creativity and work ethic behind the businesses that make Wisconsin's economy go round. Today, we'll be interviewing John Panetti, president and owner of Team Industries, North America's leader in high-quality pipe fabrication, and a company located right here in Kaukana, Wisconsin. In today's episode with John, we'll dive into Team Industries' renowned reputation for high-quality manufacturing, the significance of the Keystone Pipeline to national security, and the challenges of adapting a business during an era of pandemic chaos and heavy environmental regulation. It's an important story, And I know that you'll learn a lot as you listen. This is the Right Idea Podcast. So welcome everybody to the Right Idea Podcast. We are here at Team Industries and excited to be with John Panetti. And we're going to have a great conversation, I think, about industry and the future of this company. Um, John, thanks for joining us. We're thrilled to have you. And welcome to Team Industries. We're thrilled to be here. Um, tell us a bit about just the company and the background. We just watched a couple uh, just background videos on what the company produces, but share with our listeners what you make and, and basically who your customer base is. We are a industrial fabricator. Yeah. And the easiest way for me to explain that is if you are building a power plant or a refinery or a paper mill, and there, let's just say there's a... 10,000 pipe welds on your factory. Mm-hmm. Well, your contractor is pouring concrete and putting up steel beams. We're taking a look at all the piping drawings that go around your plant. So of those 10,000 welds, we'll break it up into what we call pipe spools. Okay. We will make 85 to 95% of those welds here in our facility, put them on a semi, ship them to the job site, okay. and your contractor will put it together like a puzzle. Got it. Now, our advantages are safety. We're in a controlled environment. We're using all the, the latest in technology, um, bridge cranes. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, 
the fastest, most productive welding processes. Those are advantages that we see. Your advantage is you get your factory up and running sooner than if it's all done in the field. Got it. So it's a, it's a concept that uh, if it's 100% x-ray, um, high pressure, super high pressure, mm -hmm. steam, if it's uh, lethal services, those are the areas that um, we excel in. Okay. Now, I know that some of the best welders in the world work here at Team Industries, and it's, uh, it's been a 33 years of uh, servicing the brewery industry, uh, the power, uh, the paper industry, mm -hmm. the refining, the chemical, uh, the solar, uh, the country's largest solar plant in uh, California, Ivanpah. Okay. I mean, we did it. We we shipped uh, 135 semi loads of pipe fabrication to that site. Okay. Um, so it, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting industry. It's right. not a boring industry. Right. Um, and we have a relationship with uh, plumbers and steam fitters. We're 100 okay. percent union company, and uh, in the th 33 years, we've never had a grievance filed. Which is amazing. You said that earlier. That is. It's not easy to do. That's a relationship that you've built over, over time. That's correct. Right. Um, today, I still carry a union card. Um, and that was the same, uh, the same situation 35 years ago. Okay. Um, so uh, it, it's worked. It's, it's worked. Um, it, it, as a local, we do have a good uh, relationship. And you'd mentioned that... Um, you, well, you mentioned a number of different places that your product ends up. Littoral com combat ships, too, correct? That is correct. Yeah. Um, we've been partnered with Fincanteri Marinette Marine for mm -hmm. about 10 years now on the LCS program. Okay. Um, same concept. And you, you can look at, there's probably in a, in a ship, there's probably about uh, 10,000 welds in a ship. And it's 6,500 pipe spools for that ship. So we will fabricate all 6,500 pipe spools here. Of the 10,000 pipe welds, we're doing 90% of the welds here. Okay. Okay, we ship them to Marinette Marine, and their installer puts it, in, puts it together like a puzzle in that ship. Got it. Their advantage is that it takes... Obviously, it removes labor out of the shipyard, and it takes their best pipe fitters that they can put on assembly. So um, it, it's a win-win. It's been uh, it's been that way for ten years. Um, and a nice close supply chain too. Correct. Right. Correct. Right. So there, uh, Fincanteri um, is a very very. Uh, strong partner of ours uh, and likewise um, it's we, and I see I see this uh, growing as as they move into the frigate class mm -hmm. boats uh, so it's it's government type uh, work it it creates uh, different challenges for us mm -hmm. as far as security as, as ITAR employee I mean we need to uh, we need to do background checks on our employees. Okay. We need to be uh, certified in ITAR, uh, TWIC cards uh, to meet their their regulations. Right. So right. Where all so where all do you do production? 
Where are your facilities? Um, we right now presently have three facilities. The okay. corporate is here in Kakana, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. We have a secondary uh, facility in Wakana Falls, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And we have a third one in Port Arthur, Texas, okay. south, southeast Texas. And um, we are just finishing up an expansion at that area mm -hmm. uh, with paint, blast and paint uh, coating facility okay. um, and also a, a brand new alloy facility where we do um, all non-ferrous uh, materials, stainless, inconoy, um, anything that where the ferrous materials can be con contaminate, mm -hmm. uh, we've eliminated that. And that's southeastern Texas. I assume that you got a lot of chemical production and oil and gas and just yes. a lot of need for your product. Chemical, oil, gas, power yep. um, the, the, are the driving factors there. Got it. So speaking of all that, I know one thing that we discussed uh, a bit earlier was the kind of the overall impact of uh, the Keystone Pipeline. Obviously something that's in the news, it affects your industry. Um, and obviously there's been a lot happening with the Biden uh, administration putting that in pause. Talk a bit about your thoughts on that and, and just how that has played out over the years. Mm -hmm. Uh, excellent question. Um, you know, I'll start out, we are a strong supporter of the Keystone Pipeline. Mm -hmm. um, if I go back to the, the origination of the Keystone Pipeline, we were the second bidder on that project. And our th philosophy at the time is from Cushing, Oklahoma, north to the Canadian border, our plan was to prefabricate those pipe spools and the pumping stations here in Wisconsin. From Cushing, Oklahoma down to Port Arthur, our plan was to prefabricate that in our facility mm -hmm. in Texas. Um, unfortunately, we were, not the, we were not the successful bidder on that. We were number two. Um, a company in, in Arkansas was, was the preferred supplier okay. and they fabricated uh, they fabricated the southern portion which was installed the northern portion was prefabricated and is in storage now um, how long has it been in storage oh, uh, I would say it has to be six seven years okay. um, yeah it could be more, more okay. than that um, the fact that that this uh, pipeline uh, under the past administration was proactive in completing it um, for no other reason than national defense. Um, Talk about that, um, yeah. Uh, in national defense, and this is where, where I'm coming, coming from, in the fact that this oil is coming out of Alberta. Mm -hmm. And national defense, if we would ever become get in a conflict of uh, in the demand for oil, the United States would be definitely in a lot uh, better situation if we had a pipeline bringing that oil to the refining capacity that we have here in the United States. Now, the fact that it's it's on hold. And I know the Chinese uh, government is pursuing building a pipeline from Alberta 
to the western coast of of uh, Canada mm -hmm. and then shipping it to China, that concerns me greatly. Right. We talked about a couple important things here. First off, I mean, oil is a fungible asset. Something Rockefeller figured out as he was <laughs> transporting it across the country and layer of the world. But like, uh, yes, if oil is not going to be efficiently transported into the United States, it will be efficiently transported somewhere in the world and used. And I, one of the things that has blown my mind about this entire Keystone debate is this kind of, in my these are my words, not yours, but like false assumption that if this pipeline isn't built into the United States, I don't. I guess the thought is that of the of the opponents of the Keystone, their thought is that the oil will magically stay in the ground, but so unlikely. Today and for, for the past, since the creation of that pipeline, the oil has always came to the United States. It's come either two methods. It's either come by rail and, or it's come by truck. Right. And when you look at the cost, the cost in transporting that by rail or truck is expedited multiple, like almost 100% more per barrel. Right. Um, plus, talk about... Uh, is in environmental I mean you have all all the cost and you have the emissions created by the transportation right which uh, which in my in my way of thinking you know that's not the best choice right I mean we have the ingenuity uh, that pipeline is designed to be the safest pipeline in the world as a model for other pipelines Right. Um, moving forward and to just make the decision we're not going to do it um, and there's there's thousands and thousand miles of pipeline in, under this country why one why that one why right. one um, right. I mean politics uh, are a complicated issue but in this uh, in in this case of that pipeline they need to do what's best for this country, right? And uh, and security is is, in my opinion, should be number one. Um, well, and we just had a we just had a um, a stark lesson in this, right? And you saw uh, what happened in Texas, where you had an energy grid which, for a number of different different reasons, was susceptible to problems, and how much and how quickly it can get bad if you do not have a ready access to, to energy supply and. It's very much what you're talking about with national security. And you also are alluding to, like, just the safety of the pipeline. I, I was going to ask you a question, a couple questions about that, because transporting um, oil and gas over rail comes with all the complications of rail. And like you said, there's carbon output in, in just moving it. There's cost. There's, there's also the danger of um, rail accidents. The pipeline, I know that those are opposed to Keystone and other pipelines and made the case, well, you can have leaks on pipelines. Talk a bit about the security around these pipelines and what makes them safe. Uh, just the, the engineering aspect of these pipelines that with this being, a, a, what should I say, a, a major topic that, uh, I mean, the engineering of this pipeline, as I stated before, is that, that pipeline is engineered to be a model of the industry right. for many years to come. Um, I, I, I look at that accident that happened in Wyoiga, what, eight years ago? And what it did, to, I mean, so fortunate that so many, that, uh, 
more people didn't be were injured in that and that explosion there I mean with a pipeline that never would have happened right and it's uh, and I'm sure you can look there's other there are other, there's other incidents either tanker trucks uh, or rail derailing mm-hmm. um, and 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 just the efficiency the cost efficiency of a pipeline right there's no question about it it's it, it, you 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 need to pull the politics out of, out of that and make a national security and uh, and an efficiency decision. Right, and that efficiency, I, I personally believe, is so important for economic growth. Right, again, inexpensive energy is critical for people to actually grow wealth and, and be prosperous and to frankly to be competitive in a world economy. And you're talking about uh, the Chinese government trying to find access to energy, basically any 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 spot on earth, they will be looking for cheap energy. And I think American policymakers need to grow up and think a lot more seriously about how do we guarantee that we're getting efficient energy to the American people and, and also safeguarding our national security at the same time. One of the, I know one of the things I've read about in the past, I don't know if this is relevant for Keystone or not, but again, a lot of, again, opponents of pipelines like to talk about leaks and all that kind of stuff, but a lot of the, these pipelines, as I understand, are actually monitored such that you can tell if there's a loss in pressure that would indicate there is a leak, which can help absolve problems uh, immediately when they when they start. Is that true? That That's true. The okay. monitoring, the, the engineering on them, the welding, I mean, it's far superior than what you saw in past years on, right. on these lines. Uh, just the, the, the total amount of the safeguards they put into these, this, this, or the XL pipeline right. is tremendous compared to what we've seen in past years, and uh, you don't, you know, what I say, you don't hear that much about that on the news media. Right. But it's it 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 comes down to efic- cost efficiencies and mm-hmm. security. Um, right. Right. You know, and the alternative not to do it is uh, it. Why why risk your security? It's very self-defeating. Yes. It's very self-defeating. How, um, how do you feel uh, those that are working in your shops feel as they see these kind of policy decisions being made relative to, to Keystone and how it's affecting uh, the future of their industry? Well, here in our, in our shop, uh, I don't know of anybody that wouldn't support uh, this pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it creates jobs. It mm-hmm. creates... Um, the number of people that, you know, with a stroke of a pen that were put out of work, right, is just not the that was not the right choice. No, it was and not. Uh, I, and I, I can understand if you have an alternate to it um, for green, to, for the environment, but there there that that's not there yet. Right, and and. Uh, it's, it just was a very, in my opinion, a very poor choice. Yeah. Yeah, well, and you make a, a great point, which is that the alternative, what, whatever a proponent might hope would be there, is not there yet. Not to the volume or the consistency that's needed to actually, like, run a, um, a, a country's economy. And we've, you know, I've written pieces on this before, and I know that our group carries forward the message that Again, this idea that cheap, efficient, and stable energy sources are key to economic growth and prosperity for people, people of every background, all across the world. So, 
Yeah, the fact that uh, the past administration, we became energy independent. It's pretty first, amazing, right? Uh, I mean, that's that's an accomplishment that's never been uh, never been. It's never happened. I know. We get to that, we get to the, that plateau, and and we go we go the opposite way. Right. Um, and, and you're seeing that right now. And uh, I mean, we're we're shipping. We're shipping oil from the Mideast. We were seeing that in our fuel oil, our gas prices. Right. Uh, I, I don't understand that. Uh, Incredibly self-defeating. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing, right? Through innovations of technology and just kind of grit and resourcefulness, the American people moved to energy independence, like you said. And just 15 years ago, people would have said, that's impossible. That literally can't happen. And it did happen. It was real. And I think the American people, unfortunately, barely even knew it occurred because it wasn't reported. <laughs> this, is my own, this is my own opinion, tons of media bias on this, but what should have been a, a triumph of technology and resourcefulness and a great thing for the people of the United States was underplayed for a variety of political reasons and, and hopes and dreams of those in the media about what they're being told about alternative energy sources. And then again, the technology's not there yet. And, I think that's caused the American people to miss this opportunity to say to policymakers, look, we want energy independence. We want the prosperity that comes with it and the security that comes with it. And if you're not willing to fight for that, we don't want you in office. And that is the kind of accountability that I personally think we need to have uh, for policymakers. But let me. Well, Very well stated, Kevin. Um, I don't, you know, that's. That's. Uh, something the country can grow on right it can prosper on uh it can only lead to positive things in the country right Um, and for industry and i mean for all all the citizens of the united states absolutely yes it's it's again plentiful energy it's one of those things i i don't i never really thought we'd be debating if it was a good thing but here we are and so this is why we're having this conversation with you because I think it's these kind of things that kind of draw out the detail behind these these concepts and make it clear to people why it's so important to support uh, sensible policies and ideas. I wanted to switch gears just a little bit and talk about the people that work for you and work with you. Um, how are you finding uh, just the labor market in general in terms of the ability to attract the talent you're looking for, make sure that they're qualified and that they've been trained in the way that they need to be? Well, our, our training, as I mentioned before, is uh, we're a union shop, mm-hmm. uh, plumbers and steam fitters, uh, local 400, and the training is superior. Um, I mean, we, we can, we're in a, a five-year apprenticeship program. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's called the Fabricator Program. We basically authored the program about 20 years ago. Okay. And... The union uh, has taken the program, enhanced the program. Um, as I stated before, some of the best welders in the world uh, work here, mm-hmm. you know, as a result of that program. And it's it's something that the union has invested uh, a large amount of money in their training programs. They do an excellent job at that, and there's no there's no government funding in that uh, toward mm-hmm. that. Fu- uh, program at all. It's all, all comes uh, from contributions of the union workers. Um, it's 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 state of the art facility. It's mm-hmm. a state of the art uh, program. It's one. Of, it's 
it's the only program I know in the country today for that. Is that physical uh, training facility? Is it nearby? Uh, basically, it's uh, only about a quarter mile away from okay. here, from Team Concona, Wisconsin. Gotcha. Are you, uh, so in terms of your talent pipeline, are you attracting enough people to fill the demand you have right now, or, or where, where is that at? Unfortunately, the business climate in our industry is very, uh, uh, very soft. Okay. And labor, there are quite a few, uh, there are quite a few of these talented people unemployed. Okay. Um, so, so labor is uh, very, I mean, it's, it's fairly easy to get the labor. It's, okay. uh, it's more of an issue of keeping the people we have employed. Okay. Um, and I would say we must, we are at about 40% capacity. Okay. Um, this has been a tough, uh, business environment. Uh, oh, COVID, uh, yep. is one is affected our, our business. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's multiple factors. It's, uh, um, Prefabrication coming from other countries um, that that has uh, really affected our industry. It's yeah. it's a tough one. I can tell you the example of that Shell Franklin job in Ohio. All of that prefabrication came from Turkey. Okay. Um, uh, India ships a ton of it. Korea ships a ton of it into this country. Um, it's something where there's no taxes on it. Um, huge, adv huge advantage uh, in the fact that the people we employ have uh, all benefits, pension, insurance. Um, so we pay that plus we pay taxes. So it's that's hard to compete against those types of, uh, of competition. competition. So I want, yeah, and I wanted to talk about the general business climate. I want to circle back to COVID, but first I'd like to talk more about these issues relevant to trade. So, you know, one of the things I think, you know, this argument about trade that's happened really over just, well, post-World War II America, right, as competition has risen out of World War II. And I think where American pol many American policymakers have struggled is to understand that, yes, trade is a good thing, but all societies have traded strategically and thought about the benefits and the trade-offs of trade and the way that it's actually executed and, and how they ensure that uh, the people of their country um, are, again, are, their, their production is treated strategically and we're ensuring that our product has access to markets across the world and if people are going to compete in our in our market that we're, be, we're doing it sensibly and we're doing it the right way. If you think about the changes that you want to see put in place, um, relative to international competition what are some of the key things that need to need to happen i think tariffs on on incoming product classifications um you know there's a definite uh distinction between a a length of uh, straight pipe versus a a pipe spool mm -hmm. which has labor associated with it um, um incoming modules with thousands and thousands of man hours coming into this country mm -hmm. um, I mean there, there's there's basically no tariffs on on uh, imports of that uh, and, and you know I, I realize there's standards that uh, 
codes that need to be met and sometimes I I question whether those uh, codes are upheld to mm-hmm. with the foreign competition. You codes that you have to meet in production that you are unsure that Correct. is happening elsewhere, right? Correct. Right. We did a large job uh, 20, 25 years ago for Exxon. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we were using at that time, uh, um, it, they were Chinese flanges. Mm-hmm. And we were about three quarters away through the project when we found that um, through the production process, we found that these these Chinese flanges were sleeved on the inside, which would not withstand the pressure that they were rated for. Okay, and it caused it caused us to replace like sixty five hundred of these flanges and and that basically led the led the restriction on no Chinese flanges okay and it's just an example of uh, what what standards they try to undermine to be able to sell their product right or the metallurgical uh, makeup of, of different materials that are uh, slid under the I'll call it slid under the table or it can be even harder to net. detect, right? Like yes. You might see the flange of the problem, Correct. but metallurgic problems might not show up for years or after production. And and, and we and we check every uh, we check every piece of material that comes in here and uh, and and I give a lot of credit to our people because we do find we do find material that is all substandard okay. and we reject that. But it's, you know, I don't. When I look across the country, how many how many different companies do check for that? Right. I don't. I, I'd like to think they all do, but. Uh, well, and what you're talking about is you, because you're in the production phase of this, and your prefab might find problems with foreign material. But you're also talking about the fact that different uh, foreign producers are shipping in prefab products that. Others are potentially assembling who are not experts in the industry. They're just putting product together. And so all this could be missed in terms of quality and regulatory misses and all the rest. Is that? That's, that's true. And there's, uh, if you remember that large uh, explosion at that refinery in, Texas, in Houston about 10 years ago, that was inferior product. Okay. That was installed there. And um, there were... I think a dozen people killed in that explosion. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just you know, so, so awareness of this is has been enhanced, right? Um, but it's still it, it's still taking place. I mean, we still find inferior product, right? Well, and yeah, this is a, I think a great example of you know I talk about trade a lot. I, I did it in my Senate race and. You'll have people saying um, they want absolute protectionism. People saying no, it's got to be free trade, free trade, free trade. And it's like, well, no, there's strategic trade in the middle, which is that if you're going to force regulatory standards upon American producers because you think it's the right thing to do for safety and variety of reasons, then you need to think long and hard about what you're allowing foreign producers to be able to get away with. And you know, if you're going to allow them to ship inferior products in without the same regulatory standards, you are strategically disadvantaging American producers and the American people. And you're opening up our market 
to inferior product and meanwhile handcuffing our producers. And this sounds like a there's, clear example of that. There's no, there's no doubt about that. There's two different standards mm -hmm. and, and the foreign producers are at definite, at definite advantage over, over a domestic supplier. Um, you know, not, not only in the material, but uh, the paintings and the coatings and right. um, I mean, the standards that we follow by for the EPA and the state of Wisconsin, the mm -hmm. DNR, um, I mean, we meet all those standards and that comes at an expense right. and it's, uh, we're, we're proud to say that we, uh, we meet those mm -hmm. standards. And, and we exceed those standards, but that's, that's not the case for a foreign competitor. Right. right. Yeah, and that's the urge of policymakers is think and understand, yes, we have a market, people will make rational choices, but if, um, if the market's imbalanced because of the way regula regulations are applied, like, it's not always easy, even for a sophisticated consumer to figure that out in the time that it takes to actually make a purchase. And that can really disadvantage again um, American producers who are held to a higher standard. You would, I was going to ask you'd mentioned COVID too. Um, so we're talking all the businesses we're talking to this year. Obviously, COVID is playing somewhat of a role for everybody in one way, shape, or form. Talk to me about the effect that you think that it, it's happening or is having on your market. Oh, good question, mm -hmm. Kevin. Um, fortunately. We were very proactive with our people. Um, we we invested in in ozone generators, okay. and we put them in all of our major areas here. We invested in equipment um, to get as many people working remotely as as we could. Okay. Um, ha personalized hand sanitizer bottles for all employees. Um, we we. Uh, we definitely became very aggressive and I mean just the uh, cleaning of, of the facilities the door handles that's done on on a daily basis um, we're and I'm proud to say that our people stepped up to the plate mm -hmm. uh, on that so it, uh, as far as people attracting and spreading uh, the COVID uh, here at Team Industries it, it's it's something that uh, that's. It's been a pleasure to say that we uh, we took all the right precautions. Right. As far as the the business climate, I mean, it's it is uh, soft mm -hmm. at at best, mm. um, and part of it's due to part of it's due to the COVID. There's okay. no doubt about it. Um, part of it's due due to the administration change right. um, uh, you know industry uh, I industry you know you you have to you have to look at is it cost effective to build a plant here in the United States or is it cost effective to build it uh, elsewhere right outside the United States and you know one of the things that the fracking uh, brought is that ability to build those plants in the United States right. and that's that's key um, uh, and we were involved uh, 
personally uh, in a plant that's uh, built in Texas that at that time, that was six years ago, the United States was the most cost-effective country to build that okay. due to fracking. And, and this was a major project. Um, um, and we were involved with, uh, we were the only union. Okay. We were the only union uh, trade that had anything uh, in, uh, input or supply mm -hmm. on, that, on that facility. Um, but it was all driven by low-cost energy. And it's, it's, again, it's, it's logical, but I think it's important to say these things out loud because you're hearing the, you're hearing the argument against cheap energy and energy production uh, shared in every avenue from schools with young children all the way to, obviously, uh, colleges and then on into the national media. And missing from that is this idea that you're talking about, which is cheap energy and making things competitive in this country yields production, which yields economic growth and activity for people and literally um, grows wealth for average Americans. And boy, that's a lot better than getting a twelve dollars or $1,400 uh, check from the government, which um, doesn't exactly make up for a growing salary over the course of a lifetime. It's just my thought. I don't know if you agree. <laughs> well, Kevin, now you're coming into an area that's justifying my blood pressure. <laughs> I don't mean to. <laughs> uh, but, uh, um, yeah, I. how do I comment on that other than I'm not a supporter of that bill? I, I it, it's, what, when you take a bill that only has 9% of it, that addresses the COVID, mm -hmm. and you try and create jobs with government programs. Those are all low. I mean, those are sh all short-term jobs, mm -hmm. and I, I, I don't know. It it, it makes me. Uh, it doesn't make me happy, or uh, I mean, I I, I question. Uh, the amount of debt that this country has, and now right. they're going to more debt. I mean, at some point of time, you be it, the country becomes vulnerable. Yeah. And for us to cross into that area right now, uh, it's it's very unfortunate. Right. Um, and and the fact that it wasn't was not bipartisan. Um, uh, what should I say? It's the definition of your responsibility. Yeah. Well, the word sustainability is thrown around a lot. When I, I got out of the Marine Corps and I went to business school, you know, everybody was talking about sustainability. I always used to say to my wife, like, are they talking about economic sustainability, environmental? There was always kind of like a blurring of these things. And um, I found that fascinating because when it came to like the real questions of sustainability, like can you grow and scale something over time? Right? Like, well, no, you cannot grow and scale a government that literally shuts down entire industries and then says, based on borrowed funds from the Chinese government, we, we will then give you $1,400 checks to make up for your loss of you know, economic uh, opportunity. It's just not sustainable. In the most clear definition of the word sustainable, this will not last. And the fact that we're not having a serious conversation in Washington and largely in Madison too about the fact that this, this has been handled horrifically. 
whatever the public health threat was, and I believe it was real, and there were sensible things that could be done, like you did on your facility, to keep people healthy and safe, um, the cost-benefit analysis of destroying an economy and then trying to spend more money out of a government that's not receiving tax revenue is craziness. And I, I don't know what else to call it. There's no nice word. There's, the words get worse, uh, if you're going to be honest about like what's being done and how, how much little forethought there is in it. Yeah, the, the fortunate thing is the vaccines are, I mean, they right. are been, they, they're being administrated. Um, and, and if you, I guess you project this out, project this out a year, I mean, the vaccine should be all administrated. Right. But the concern is, have we dug ourselves such a hole that we can't come back? Right. And, and, and to think you're going to to think that you're going to stain the, the economy with government created jobs is not uh, is not a, make for a strong oh what should I say nation yeah um, the the fact that I mean if you flip the coin over flip the coin over and look at um, if you lower the cost of energy what it does to fuel your economy right is just phenomenal i mean right. it's not even a, it's not even a it's not even a comparison and uh i i wish i wish others could see that and uh i mean we we see it here because we're in the industry right um, it's 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 a sad it's a sad situation and i i sure hope that uh and pray that we can we can reverse that trend. Well, and it's, it's why we're having this conversation with you today, because I do think people need to hear real examples, uh, ideally in their backyard, of like how this plays out. Like what do these, what can oftentimes be manipulated policy discussion debates, what do they really mean to them in their real life? And here we're talking about literally uh, production of materials in the state of Wisconsin from Team Industries that goes and moves uh, energy around the country in an efficient way again creates the opportunity for prosperity that's really sustainable and the 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 alternative mindset that I and these are my words not yours but I see coming from the left is just fantasy flights of fantasy of saying no we don't need energy no we don't need cheap energy we'll just pay with this pay people with government funds because I I'm sorry, I, I, again, my word's not yours. I detect a bit of glee of this idea of more people in the government role is better for power coming from the left. And again, none of this is sustainable. It's, it's creating a rickety infrastructure for a country of 350 million people, which just isn't going to last. And that's in so many ways why I think you see so many people that are upset. They may not see every detail of what's happening behind um, the curtain, but they have a sense that things are off kilter. And uh, from their kids being kept out of schools to just seeing their jobs being, uh, you know, treated as expendable by policymakers, it's just not a good place for people's heads to be in. So, I would agree 100%. Um, I mean, to think that we're going to put we're going to put Americans to work building solar panels. Um, I mean, you don't have to look very far. Look at Germany. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I mean, they they are dependent. Uh, they do a lot of solar solar panels there. But when you dig into it, 
um, how many solar panels were built in Germany? Not many. Mm-hmm. And to think you, uh, in America we're going to make that a prevailing wage job, uh, building solar panels. I mean, in Germany they they come from China because right. China's cost cost effective. Right. And to put say we're going to do prevailing wages and and take skilled workers to build uh, solar panels. Uh, I don't I don't like that business model. Right. Uh, it's creating an immense amount of market interference in order to, to cause that result. No, it's no one in the market is demanding that that happen. That's being forced through the government, and it's creating a massive inefficiency. I agree a hundred percent. It's uh, it's not a good path to go down. And right. I think that's the savior. Uh, is uh, misbelief. Right. Uh, well, I know there's. Um, the other thing too, you bring up, especially as you, as the government artificially dictates what the wage um, should be in the production of a solar panel, like the funny thing about those solar panels, right? And you mentioned the produced in China for much lower cost. Um, if you jack up the cost of production through dictating wages, will it ever be economic uh, to actually receive energy, you know, to collect energy and, and be an economic upside over the duration of its existence? And there's a good chance it won't be. Yeah, I would say I'd say you're correct. I mean, if you look look at that photograph there, that's the country's largest solar project in uh, south southeast California. Okay. And we were directly involved with that. We supplied over 140 semi loads of pipe spools for that project. And what I what I'm saying is. I, I like the diversity of having different energy sources, mm-hmm. but solar solar is not the the number one source to for the future of this country. Right. I mean, you need all all the suppliers of it. I mean, I know I know that's a very expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very expensive uh, proposition in solar. Uh, in fact, when you look at windmills, it's uh, without government funding. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't take your own money and make an investment like that. Right. So diversity here. I, I mean, I mean, it, you could make investments in. I mean, look at the in in coal. I mean, I agree. There's there's some emissions there. That I mean, about what ten. Less than ten percent emissions. Well, let's work on cleaning up that ten percent. Right. I I know there's I know there's test facilities in Wyoming that are working on that. Let's make an investment in there. Right. I mean, let's let's look at uh, let's look let's let's look at utilizing this bonafide amount of natural gas we have, mm-hmm. um, which and, burns very clean. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Right. So, balancing that out versus putting all your eggs in one basket on wind and and uh, solar, um, and there may be a day, but I, I think I think you have to you have to balance yourself into that position. You can't just make in one day say well, we're going to look in the other direction. 
and you're hearing that coming from a lot of policymakers. It'll be 10 years, 20 years. It just must happen. We will dictate it, and that's not how technology necessarily works. Um, and I, one thing, and I think you're getting to, I have urged people to think about, and I think is is. Look, investments in technological de development and energy are great, and I think that is one of the purposes our national labs are, are supposed to serve, is to advance technology that can, can help society. And, you know, instead of, um, I think, diktats coming from government saying we will produce X amount of solar panels, it'd be great to say we're going to invest in true baseline research of what can move forward the ability to store the power of the sun, which is something we can't do at scale at this point. And, that could have great uh, implications for the future. We're not there. We're not going to be there tomorrow or the next year. But true research and science, like looking at what we can really do to advance the ball, I think is that's the kind of thing you'd love to see a government doing for the future of its people instead of trying to interfere in market and create a result which is just not – there's just not volume of, of production because of intermittency, like wind only – blows at certain times and the sun's only out for so many hours a day um and that's i hate to break to people that's science it's real <laughs> yeah that, that is right yeah i'd like to see I, i'd like to see more uh, input on hydrogen um talk about that I'm interested. yeah it's it's another alternative mm -hmm. um i mean we've heard a lot about electric electric driven vehicles mm -hmm. and um and i think they have their place but to think that you're going to have, um, that there's a day that everything's going to be uh, electric. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the, the environmental damages of building those batteries mm -hmm. are is a huge item that goes against that policy. Right. And when you, you think about it, um, you know, when you, you're on a super highway. And if every vehicle was was electric, and we get to the point we have a we have these uh, slowdowns, you have a traffic jam. Mm -hmm. Okay, especially if it's in severe weather. Now that battery and all those vehicles, and you might have ten thousand vehicles mm -hmm. on that highway that shut down, and you're in severe weather. Right. What are you going to use for heat? Yeah. Right. I mean, look at what just happened in Texas, right? Yeah. 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 Right. Now, I, those are the things that, I mean, you plan you you plan a strategy how to address mm -hmm. that, um, and I think that's that's really lacking in the present administration, is that we're just making these these far left uh, decisions that and with no plan and with lack of planning. Right. Is, it concerns me. That's it. I think that's that's the push that we'd love to make through the conversation we're having today is more strategy, more forethought, and more just recognition of reality. And those things will actually help build the future. Well, it, this has been a great conversation. I wanted to kind of close on like a high note and, and ask you, what makes you hopeful for the future just of team industries and, and of your industry. And I know we've talked about many of the challenges, but what does make you hopeful about the future? What I like about the future and the items that we have overcome here in the 33 years, it's uh, number one, it, it's our, our management team. Mm -hmm. we've, all, we've always been able to overcome our labor force. Uh, 
I've always seen uh, the labor force step up to the table and overcome a challenge. For the business moving forward, um, we, we are uh, we're headed into, I'll call it management retreat, mm -hmm. where we will look at what can we do to diversify? Mm -hmm. What can we do to change? Um, are there some new markets we can explore? Um, you know, try try and look. I'll, I'll look outside the box. I'll use. Right. I mean, what what can we do here to team industries? And uh, you know, do we go? Do we use the same business model, or do we create a new business model? Right. I mean, it, at team, we're moving. We're in a situation where uh, myself included. Uh, we're coming. We're on the senior side of our careers and we've got uh, uh, I've had two boys in the in the in the business mm -hmm. a nephew uh, we've got a great young uh, group coming up through and, and what knowledge we can pass on mm -hmm. and uh, let them uh, you know give them the chance to to lead right and uh, so that those are some challenges that uh, we need to overcome here, um, but I know I know one thing about younger generations. Um, and you give them the opportunity to to uh, to lead, they will. Um, you keep them in the right direction. Mm -hmm. um, we can overcome uh, the business climate that we're in today, and and I look forward to that challenge. John, thank you for everything you've done, your leadership, your team's leadership in our state. Um, there is, there is, I don't need to tell you this, many families who have worked for Team Industries over the years who appreciate it and are in a better position in their life because of the growth of this company and the opportunity it's afforded them. So, so thank you. We're thrilled to have you on the Right Idea podcast. We're thrilled to be in Kakana, and we, will, uh, we look forward to coming back in the future if you'll have us. And Kevin, uh, we appreciate the opportunity to participate. Thank you. I'm Kevin Nicholson. Thank you for joining us today on the Right Idea Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the Right Idea Podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Ricochet, Stitcher, Luminary, or wherever you listen to podcasts.